You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Kev Kyatt here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. We're here to help. You are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. Our job is to bring you practical, tactical expertise that you can use right now, or maybe in an hour. You're about to hear the recording of a live call with an expert panel, and you're more than welcome to join these live calls. Just zip on over to nonprofitproblemsolver.com to register. We close out our first series of Nonprofit Problem Solver with episode 12, a closer look at board and strategy. And we focus on some must-dos and some nice-to-haves in terms of board succession planning, recruitment and onboarding, and ongoing board education. We also get an update from the panel about how 2020 has redefined strategic planning and why, instead of postponing, every board should be actively planning right now. Part of that is taking initial steps to address systemic racism in every one of our organizations. All that over the next hour. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. This is episode number 12, and we're talking about board and strategy. This is the last of uh, series one uh, and we'll be coming, uh, changing tack a bit next week and doing one-to-ones over the summer and then the panel format will return uh, with possibly some slight tweaks and changes in the fall. So let me start by uh, introducing our panel and uh, I will start with Julie. Hi, everyone. I'm Julie Clark, Vice President of Nonprofit Engagement with Business Volunteers Unlimited. We're in Cleveland, Ohio, and we provide assistance to nonprofits and businesses related to community engagement. Happy to be here. Great. And Benita? Hi, my name is Benita Stanley. I'm with Stanley Solutions Consulting, which is based here in Atlanta, Georgia, but we serve um, clients all across the country and on the continent of Africa. We specialize in capacity building and infrastructure development for nonprofits, particularly nonprofits of color, and happy to be here. Thanks. Great to have you. And Gregory? Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm excited to uh, uh, certainly be part of this journey that I feel like we're on. Um, I'm the president and CEO of Community Action Partnership here in Orange County, California. Um, Community Action is part of a national network of what we call CAP agencies, born out of the war on poverty during the civil rights movement, um, with our mission is really to help families and individuals who are dealing with poverty. So we operate a big food bank, Um, we work with seniors and deal with food insecurity and hunger, financial empowerment, um, education after school programming, um, so really having a whole family approach to dealing with poverty. And um, again, I'm excited to be here. Uh, and we're excited to have you. Thank you. Uh, we may have uh, a couple join as we go. Now, I wanted to start with a question we were unable to answer last time. We ran out of time. 
that had come from the, the chat. And, and unfortunately, the person who asked it uh, isn't able to join us and ask the question again. But she was curious to uh, know how the panel uh, felt or, or had, if there were resources that the panel could recommend with regard to board leadership and succession planning. Uh, anything that you knew, uh, anything that uh, came to mind, and we can always put links in in the chat and 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 share it. Uh, Benito, do you, or is this something that you deal with on a day to day basis with your clients? Uh, yeah, pretty pretty regularly. So one of the first things I recommend for the viewers across the country is find out what. Um, the organization is in their state because each state has one and there usually are uh, organizations that focus solely on nonprofits. Um, here in Georgia, it's called the Center for Nonprofit Management in California. It's called the California Center for Nonprofits and they provide excellent resources for not only board members, but officers, executive directors, president, CEOs of nonprofits across sort of the plethora of work that you have to do to lead an organization. Another source that I've used regularly is called Board Source, which is a national organization that provides guidance on governance. Um, but personally, a lot of work that I do is one-on-one -on -one with the executive directors. One of the first things that I help them do in terms of succession planning is I sit with the executive directors and help them rewrite their job description. Because when they got the job 5, 10, 15 years ago, it was quite different than what they're actually doing. And you need to know that level of specificity if you're going to then sort of recruit and look for a replacement or plan for someone to step into your shoes. A second thing that I do is usually I help them recruit, identify, screen, and then hire either a deputy director or managing director so that they can um, sort of train along the way over hopefully at least a two-year period to step into their role. And that's part of the succession plan I help them put together. And then the last piece, I'd like to work with executive directors to create what I call a desk manual or a desk binder. Some people prefer a spreadsheet, some people prefer a matrix, but it's really a very detailed document that lists out every major function of their job and what aspect of their of that um, has an annual deadline, a quarterly, a monthly, a daily. Do that for your, your governance. You do that for your funding, so your grant making calendar and make sure you have all the key contacts. You do that for all of your social media, for your communications. I mean, it's just a very detailed document that's really sort of a blueprint for banking, you know, everything, so that if someone has to step in uh, they have sort of a, a document that can guide them on the way forward. That's And that document, which sounds amazing, is for EDs? For executive directors, but it also has to be, um, you know, run by the board of directors as well. Right. Uh, but, but it's but, really necessary in the succession planning cycle. Right, right. Okay. And, and um, Julie, would you, would you say that there is a, um, an expected cadence of training that – board members should be going on either uh, uh, whether they're new board members or whether they have been uh, on, on, on the board for more for one or more organizations for some time? Absolutely. So ongoing board education should be a piece of every board member's life and every board meeting. There should be some element of education, whether it's related to the programming or management, it could be finance related, it could be sector related, or just what's going on in the community as a whole. Um, so that's really important. Um, the other piece with uh, board leadership and thinking about 
succession planning for the board is committee leadership is a great way to kind of be that, <clears throat> excuse me, testing ground and see if it's a good fit, see if you're developing the capabilities that you need to be uh, an officer. Um, you know, you don't want to just spring somebody into an officer role. Uh, you want to give them as much foundation so that they can be prepared for that. And committee leadership is, uh, is a fantastic way to do that. And you want to be thinking what unfortunately happens so often with board leadership succession planning as well as executive uh, director succession planning is people don't think about it until <laughs> you're in it. And oh my gosh, our board president just resigned or our executive director just gave notice. It's, it's an activity that you want to do before you're in that crisis moment and so that you can be better prepared. And so as you are recruiting new board members, you're thinking about, do I see that person as a potential future officer or leader of this organization in some way? And that's what you're recruiting for from the very get-go. You might be looking two or three years out. Well, you mentioned uh, avoiding the crisis moment of being plunged into this sort of recruitment process uh, unprepared. Uh, the talent and staff development panels uh, through this uh, podcast series have emphasized the, the growing demand for crisis management skills just because it's 2020 and, and the sorts of things that they are seeing and hearing in job descriptions and requests for new roles or how they're cutting going through uh, recruitment. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's almost like a double whammy with uh, the, the crisis management we've got going on anyway, but then trying to avoid adding to that burden by not preparing properly for uh, any of these uh, board vacancies and, and so on. Absolutely. It's a huge, I mean, just the layers. And as um, Benita said, you know, the job description that an executive director had six months ago is not their job today, mm. you know, and, and it's not going to be their job in six months. And so unfortunately what happens very, very regularly is that those job descriptions, you know, you're hired and that job description kind of, you know, goes to the wayside and you do what you have to do and it never gets another look until a transition is occurring. Right. Gregory, as, a, as our ED on the panel today, uh, it, does, does, it, um, is, does it accord with your experience to have some element of a board training in each meeting? And how do you manage the, the, the alongside um, your, with your board chair, the, the development plan for board leadership during the course of the year? Well, yes. I mean, I, th I think board education is really important. And, and a lot of it is um, centered around understanding our programs and how we, you know, without getting into operations, but really how we operate. I try to um, really keep the board at a very strategic level. Um, so if we're having conversations about public policy, if we're advocating for certain things, it's that's a great way not only to educate them, but also to get them engaged and involved in that process. Um, but just in general, sometimes you have board members who've never been a board member before. Um, so that level of education coming into the organization is important. Um, we just recruited two new board members. I'm doing a big orientation for them next week on Zoom, just to orient, orient them around how our budget works, how, how, where we get our money from, like all those little things. So when we're using certain acronyms in a board meeting, that they really understand that. 
Um, but also uh, having helping board members to understand they have a legal responsibility of being on the board. So I think all those basic things are really important. Then from there, it is identifying, you know, leadership. It's um, like I, I shouldn't, as a CEO, I should know who, who's my board, who's going to be my board chair five years from now. And really thinking that far in advance in terms of my current board chair, um, we have a great relationship. But we often laugh and say, hey, I'm not gonna be, she's not going to be here forever. Um, and I joke and say, well, if you're not here, I'm not going to be here either. Um, so we joke about that. But, but we, do have, we do have serious conversations about all right, who's next. And it's not always the vice chair. Um, um, theoretically, it, it should be that like you're grooming the vice chair to become chair. So they're in meetings. They're, you're, you're grooming that person to eventually be chair. Um, so I think having a conversation but also having a plan in place as relates to succession um, is important. And for me, succession is not about replacement. Succession is really about risk management um, because um, I'm, I'm in a crisis or when things happen, you want to, you want to know what you, you want to know your next step. And so if, if for some reason my board chair, you know, leaves tomorrow, uh, we know immediately as a board, as an organization, how are we going to respond to that? I just hired a chief operating officer. Um, um, unfortunately, he was offered a job before pandemic hits. Unfortunately, his start date was marked, you know, beginning in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and we needed a chief operating officer prior to that. I'm not sure how I would have gotten through this pandemic and all that we're doing without having a chief operating officer. Now, and, but what that did for us is help us create risk management plans on dealing with this crisis, but also when I'm not there, um, um, we, it's covered. Or if something happened, I didn't hire my replacement. I hired, a, I hired, I hired risk, I really plugged in risk management for the organization because they know if I hit the lottery, I'm out of there, but they know, what's gonna, they, they know that there's someone who's, who's able to step in. And it was, because it wasn't about my replacement, it was about risk management for the organization. Right. That's, that, that's great. I, I appreciate that. The two, two uh, little bit pieces before we move on. Uh, one is um, what's, the, what's the balance between uh, doing what you might refer to as internal education, this is how we operate, this is about us, versus some, um, and I don't want to use the term generic, but externally provided uh, uh, education that might be for the whole group, provided by some of the organizations that uh, Benita mentioned. How do, how do you guys recommend EDs think about getting that, that balance? And the second question, which may be part of the answer, is, uh, is, is, there, is, is best practice having a, a training and development plan for each board member? So I'll, I'll throw that out to whoever wants to, to, answer, to answer that one first. Benita, I think you're not on mute, so. <laughs> oh, yeah, so um, I love the idea of having individual training plans. I don't know that that exists with any of my clients. Um, so I, I, can't, I can't speak to that, but it sounds ideal. Um, I, do, I do know that um, the organizations that I work with uh, struggle to find viable candidates to serve on the board of directors, which is why I think it's so important to have a standing nominations committee that, that is about this work and recruitment on an ongoing basis throughout the year. Um, I think 
it would behoove nonprofits to really start engaging younger people into their governance structure. Um, um, you know, in my experience, it's been that most boards of directors have folks who are somewhere between 35 and 70 years of age on their boards. And I really think times are changing and you really do need some younger people with fresh ideas, different perspectives, um, and dare I say, energy. <laughs> Julie, what's your view on the, on, the, on the balance between the internal and external? I think it, I think it depends. So generally what we recommend is having a board development or governance, whatever you want to call it, committee that is focusing on, you know, the recruitment and ongoing education of board members. And so looking at, you know, you might do a survey of board members and ask, you know, are there particular gaps? Um, you know, are these particular topics of interest? You know, I think having at least once a year, and again, it depends on how often your board is meeting, but at least once a year, someone external coming in and talking to your organization is really valuable. It might be a head of a local foundation. It might be a partner organization. Um, those are just really helpful. And as, as Gregory was saying, you know, if you're thinking about public policy issues that impact your organization, that higher level thinking keeps your board at that higher level thinking, um, you know, and those perspectives are, are really important. So I would say, you know, I don't know, 50-50 maybe that, you know, you're balancing or 75-25, but, you know, it's, it's so important to keep them engaged. You don't want them to just come and listen to a lecture about an right. issue that's going on. You have to then connect it back and, you know, you've got some questions so that you're primed so that you can really engage them. Okay, you know, they shared this experience. How does that connect to the work that we're trying to accomplish? But keep bringing it back to, to your organization. Yeah, thank you for that. That's uh, so. That's so. You're saying roughly about fifty-fifty. Um, does that feel about right, Gregory? From from your experience, I know you sit on a couple of boards in addition to being serving as an ED. Yeah, I, I, I think you know it's it's a it's you know whatever whatever the percentage is. I think it all depends on the board um, and the mix of your board and how many how long some of them have been there versus others. Um, I try to. Um, for me, my number one business partner in my organization is my board. Like, at the end of the day, we can say we're about the mission and, you know, whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, my number one objective is to make sure that me and the board are on the same page. And that includes training. So if I have a new board member, um, I try to um, – I don't go to every committee meeting, but I'm at most committee meetings sometimes my staff are there. But I also try to do one-on-one -on -one with my board members. Um, before the pandemic, it was a few times a year going out to lunch together. Um, or if I've noticed something in the committee that so, you know, a certain person didn't understand something, um, it could be around finances. I would have my CFO you know, call Julie um, and because I saw that she didn't understand. So it's paying attention to those things, but it's also paying attention to the big picture. Like we use the Brown Act um, because of the type of agency that we are. We use the Brown Act as part of our um, bylaw structure. Um, and, 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 and so coming in, they need to understand what the Brown Act is. How is that different from other organizations? And so we do the higher level Brown Act information, bylaws, how decisions are made, um, public policies, all those things. But then sometimes you got to get down to the nitty gritty and spend one-on-one -on -one time with certain board members who are new 
or, or have a lack of understanding. Um, and sometimes it's as, it's as simple as board members can't call staff members and give them instructions and tell them what to do. Right. And so yeah. we've covered that a couple of times, yeah. haven't we? <laughs> so, but, but guess what? That's a training. They need yeah. to understand their yeah. role. And if that's not part of your training, then you're going to be frustrated because they think they're doing the right thing um, because they see something. But right. in reality, they, they, it's, it's inappropriate. But they don't know it's inappropriate mm-hmm. if you don't train them the role. The board has one staff member. That's me. And, and I have 120. And so it's, it's under, and that's not arrogance. It's just to understand we have different roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we have different levels of responsibility and authority. And if they don't understand that, then, you know, you, you haven't done training well. Yeah, we've, we've mentioned that I think a couple of times and, and not just in, uh, in this panel about the importance of being clear whether a board member is wearing a board hat or a volunteer hat and, 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 and understanding where that, that, lies, that line draws. Okay, final thing, is it? So, so is Kim, it, let me just add to that yeah, very quickly. Um, so what I forgot to mention is that um, when I was an executive director with the American Civil Liberties Union, one of the things that I did with my board was I did lunch and learns four times a year. And so however many board members were able to attend, you could attend, but those were also training opportunities that obviously surrounded food. (laughs) So um, that was another way to sort of get some education and training in as well. Oh, okay. That's great. I just wanted to ask uh, uh, Gregory, if it's at all realistic for anyone to, uh, to think that they might have individual training plans for their board members. Cause if it isn't, I don't want anyone walking away thinking that that's best practice when it's not realistic. I, I don't, I, I think you, you have to do it through a structure, like through a committee structure, through, through um, at board meetings, as Julie talked about earlier at board meetings, having a part of your, every board meeting is some type of training, whether it's around programming or, or uh, for me, Every part of the agenda at the board meeting is, a, it, 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 I always think like I'm training them. Because if we're talking about new funding that we got, or we're talking about a problem, um, we're giving them enough information so that they can have, be involved in, a, in, in an intellectual conversation. So for me, it's all of it is training all the time. Um, but there are designated times when you do that. The only time I would say is it's 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 unreal. If you got twenty five board members, it's unrealistic to have yeah. a development yeah. plan for twenty five board members. But if you identify new board members coming in, they need you know they don't understand this, they need certain training. You may reach out and do that, but you can't have a, a development plan for twenty five different people. Right. So basically, a, str- a good onboarding process uh, yeah. aligned with a. Um, a governance or a development committee, uh, as Julie mentioned, looking after those training needs is uh, should 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 do it as long as um, the it's balanced between internal and external. Yeah, and and paying attention. So if I see a board member who um, is not engaged, either they're distracted or they just, they they just have no idea what's going on, and um and and they're afraid to say what they don't know. So, so I may reach, it's about relationships. So I may reach out and say, just check in and, and talk about what happened at the board meeting as a way to engage them. And that's another way to, it doesn't feel like a training, but in reality, I'm giving them some information to help them. So I think it's about, and I'm not acting like I do this 100% because I don't. Um, um, none of us have time. But I think it, it's, it's those informal opportunities as well as the formal opportunities that will help your board be on board. 
what it, what it leads to uh, when we were when we were talking about uh, some of the, the crisis issues and again being 2020 uh, and still a fair bit of uncertainty uh, moving forward and I think uh, further development since we last spoke about a month ago is there is there is it realistic to think even that there's something like strategic planning or are those just really put away for the next Six, twelve months. I know, Gregory, you've got a you've got a, a very long plan, um, but uh, in in, uh, in in where you're an ED. But in the other organizations where you're on the board, is there any strategic planning going on at all, or is it all business continuity, crisis management? This is this we've just got to get through 2020 because we don't know what's coming next. Well, I. Um, it's a combination of, it's all of that. <laughs> so some of it is, you know, we're, we're using our strategic plan even in the midst of this because our plan included crisis, risk management, crisis management. And so if we have an objective of, of disaster, a disaster plan, guess what? There's no, we're, we're in it. And so that was part of our plan. We had to pivot. We had to stop some things. Uh, some of the other boards I serve on um, is all about crisis management. Um, and um, but I, but I think the bigger picture is a lot of organizations don't use the strategic plan to their benefit and make it a living, breathing not just yeah. document, but is a big part of their journey to to achieve their their mission. And so a lot of organizations don't do it. I can, I, but I also don't want to get paralyzed by analysis. Um, um, so even though we have a big plan, if things shift, um, it's, it's, it's nimble enough for, for me to be me because I'm a visionary and I'm a charismatic leader. So it's, it allows me to do, to be me as well as us, you know, look at the metrics and see if we're achieving our goals. Right. So Julie, uh, uh, Gregory's re referring to crisis management in his strategic plan. I, I'm going to guess that that's not that common. <laughs> I don't know what the numbers are. I don't know if anyone's ever done a done a a, a study, but um, my guess is that people tend to think of those things in in you know one is immediate and one is you know by definition strategic. Uh, is, is anyone doing strategic planning now? Is it even sensible to think of it? Yes, organizations are doing it. It looks a little bit different. Um, you know, obviously the, the stakeholder outreach is different than perhaps if you were doing it six months ago. And I think part of it is, you know, whether you call it a strategic plan or you call it a, you know, three-year recovery and, you know, growth plan, that's kind of semantics. But organizations right now need to be thinking about where we want to be in 2022. Because if you wait until you co we come out of this, it, it's going to be too late. So we can't be we can't be frozen to only deal with the immediate. Yes, there's a lot of immediate that has to be dealt with, but we still need to be thinking about where we want to be and kind of working towards building a bridge to get there. And what are the steps that we take? And it might take a little bit longer because the funding is going to be tougher or, you know, just our program delivery has to look different. But we're also seeing organizations, <clears throat> excuse me, that, you know, we worked with last year that had in their plan, we want to figure out how to do online service delivery and deliver some of our programs in a different way. And guess what? Then they were positioned and able to do it. 
they probably got pushed off the ledge a little bit faster because they were thinking like, okay, we're going to do this research and we're going to do this and we're going to do this to get there. And they just move toward action, which is okay. I think we don't want to find ourselves in a position where I think, as you said, Gregory, you know, too much analysis, which sometimes causes paralysis. And we, you know, we're just in the data and, and in the, you know, in the weeds and not taking those leaps of action. So I think it's a, it's a combination, but we're actively doing strategic planning with organizations right now. Um, you know, we've had conversations with them about how it might look a little, a little bit different, but it's, it's as important as ever to be thinking about, you know, not just the next six months, but beyond. So you, you mentioned you mentioned this, the the bridge into 2021 2022 uh, Benita what for the organizations you're working with are they able to to build that bridge what sort of anchors are they are they sort of reaching for when they're looking ahead across that sort of strategic horizon So let me let me back up and say that my clients that currently have strategic plans are still following those plans mm-hmm. because those are broad documents that really focus on the organization's overarching goals. Now, some of the strategies, the tasks, the minutiae are shifting a little bit because they had to under COVID-19. But um, so some of those shifts have been those business continuity miles through 2022. But one of the things that's really wonderful, and Julie will sort of agree with me, I'm sure, is that when you're doing a strategic planning process, you undergo a SWOT analysis. And, you know, and you look at threats. And this is the biggest threat. It's an external threat that no one could have encountered. And so there are some things that were in place to sort of counter the threats and to respond to those threats. And so that's where the clients are shifting. But, you know, as we talked about during the last call, a lot of what's happening is having these negotiation conversations with the funders, Um, um, having to pivot really quickly and get the technology ramped up to make sure staff is able to to work remotely and also ramp up the technology so that folks can do all of their organizing and work across digital platforms in a, in a, like, uh, amplified format times a hundred, right? Because you can't be on the ground organizing doing field work anymore. And so, I think I think the strategic plan is still viable. It has to be nimble and flexible to meet the needs and respond to this sort of external threat, which is no longer a threat now. It is just in our face, and we're dealing with it. Um, but yeah, the bridges are certainly being built. And the, unfortunately, as we talked before the call started, some of that includes some sh- some staffing changes, right? And sort of reprioritizing where's, where's the best place to um, allocate the funds to get us through the next year or two. But so, I mean, you mentioned, Gregory, the idea of a strategic, a strategic plan not being a document, but a process along the journey. And I think we've, we've sort of understood that that's, that's, that's best practice to have it a li- living, breathing, whether it's a document, but it's, you know, certainly an idea and a framework. Um, and that seems more important now than ever, because you've got to tie it into what's going on and have that, that nimble uh, a- approach. What what would you advise a, a, an ED who's 
or a board chair who's trying to, you know, not shake the dust off an old strategic plan that's been neglected, but, but you know, trying to keep this, keep a, a plan alive and in the hearts and minds of, of staff and stakeholders. What, what tactics and techniques do you, do you recommend? Um, I mean, one way to do it is we make it part of every single meeting. And so it's on, it's on and, and what I mean by it's part of every meeting, it doesn't mean that there's a, an agenda on the strategic plan, but there's elements of the strategic plan that's in every single meeting. And because from our strategic plan, we have an annual plan, we have annual goals. At the bottom of every written agenda, everything that goes out is um, these are our five, and you know, we call it, we call it epic goals for the year. And that's on every every agenda item that we have, every agenda that we have. So it's elements of the, of the strategic plan. And, every, and when I say every agenda, I mean from the board meetings all the way down to department meetings, um, all the way down to one-on-one meetings, meeting with your staff. And so it's always at the top of, because if, if, if there's an agenda item that does not fit into our strategic plan, then we ask ourselves, why is it on the agenda? Um, and does it mean we have to shift or shoot? Or is this something we should not be talking about? Right. Um, so, so I think that's what, that's what makes, it, makes it important. And I think it's, you know, for me, leadership matters. Leadership matters. And somebody has to, have, somebody has to champion it. Yeah. And so um, um, I champion it. And um, so I'm, but then I have, I have people around me. I have, I have a new COO who's excited about it. He champions it. And so if I'm championing it and he's championing it, then the rest of the organization follows because I understand my influence within the organization. I understand my influence on the board. I help set the agendas. So if I'm championing it, I think that plays a major role in how it plays out as part of the DNA and the culture of the agency. So it sounds, it sounds like leading, treating the strategic plan itself and the whole process around it as a, as a leadership tool and then making it real on a day-to-day basis by making it visible and, and referencing it uh, on a routine basis. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's like I said, leadership matters. Um, and we can get caught up into, um, like right now, we, we, we still have our regular meetings, but we have a Thursday meeting called, we call it COVID-19 Mastermind. That's all focused on the, the crisis. But guess what? We're also doing a rebranding. We're doing a new website. It's all part of our strategic plan. We're still moving forward on those things, but we focus on the crisis as well as, now I understand every organization can't do that because of their size or resources or whatever, but you just got to be innovative and find ways. Yes, we got to focus on a crisis, but our rebranding is still happening um, all at the same time. And showing people that, um, I think people want to, you know, they get excited about it too because now they reference it but I'm not there, and that's what you want. For them to talk about it when you're not there. Right, okay. Uh, thanks for that, so a couple of really important tactics. Uh, and you mentioned leadership, so I wanna I pivot slightly uh, to, we've referenced COVID a number of times. I think the other uh, salient feature uh, in our culture today is a renewed uh, conversation we're having around uh, race and racial equity, uh, which is not, um, uh, passed by it, it, the, the nonprofit sector is not immune from it. Um, and so we've had, as you would expect from nonprofits, a lot of response in support of Black Lives Matter and some of the civil protests and so on. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm wondering 
how as we move into this next phase beyond the statements from the board of directors or the uh, the posts on social media in support of, of, of racial equity and Black Lives Matter and trying to uh, address ways in which uh, the, uh, this organization has a commitment to uh, racial equity. What, what sort of actual behaviors are we going to be needing to see, particularly from organizations that are white-led or white-dominated, either the, you know, in the, in the C-suite or in the board, to, to feel like that has that leadership has taken that seriously and that this is possibly uh, an inflection point. Uh, Benita, can you, can you respond to that? So I think one of the things that um, folks in the C-suite and um, white led boards could do is to begin to educate themselves on the history of systemic oppression, discrimination, and really quite frankly, the murder of black bodies in this country for over 450 years. Um, a, a good place to start is to maybe take a step back, acknowledge your privilege, take a step back and listen, and maybe not take up so much space in the room and just hear. Um, so specific things that would be helpful to folks in those positions was to undergo anti-racism training, uh, specifically those led by people of color. There's a great organization out of New Orleans called the People's Institute for um, Survival and Beyond. Um, but really have those difficult conversations about race, discrimination, slavery, the enslavement of Africans, police misconduct, oppression, bias, privilege, etc. Not only um, amongst yourselves as board members, but also in your home with your family members, with your friends and challenge one another on these 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 constructs. Right. And then the other piece is that start recruiting African-American, Latinx, Asian, First Nation folks of color to these boards so you can get different perspectives and experiences. One other very tactical thing that can be done is as board members, you all can start investigating internally how your, your nonprofit deals with these matters of race, bias, and discrimination internally. Can policies be adopted to combat this? Can guidance be given to the executive director, president, CEO? Can budget monies be allocated for trainings, not only for the board, but for internally within your organization to address these matters? Yep, that's, that's, that's helpful. So uh, a, a fair bit of training, as we would expect, uh, yielding some space in the room, which I think is um, a really important uh, factor and then looking internally at policies, procedures, and, and, and so on. Uh, Julie, what are you seeing people uh, thinking about or possibly uh, doing? Uh, what's BDU doing, you know, and, 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 and how, do, how can we gain some, you know, hope, have some confidence that, that we're gonna make some progress? So one of the things that we're seeing is just in the last week or so, we've had eight or nine different nonprofits come to us and say, hey, we need help with this, what can we do? We are a predominantly white organization. And so we yield and say, we don't, we're not experts in this space. And so actually in a little bit, we've got a call uh, with some folks who do diversity training and consulting and are gonna talk with them about how we can bridge the work that they do to the boardroom. Um, Internally, you know, you know, we issued a statement, certainly, as, as many organizations did, but I think what's important, as, as Benita said, is the then what. 
you know, the statement is great, but the action needs to happen. You know, you've got to have conversations and they're uncom they can be uncomfortable conversations at, at the boardroom level about what you're doing or not doing and how you can, you know, make progress on that. So we kind of, we've put together, what are some things that we can do externally? You know, who can we partner with? As Benita said, turn to people who, who do this work, who are experts on it, listen and yield and allow them to help you navigate through it. Um, you know, can we partner with organizations? Can we do some webinars? Can we use our audiences to, to get a message out? And then internally, what can we do? So we've started, you know, internally, we've started a book club. We're reading White Fragility. We're reading a couple other books in the, in the coming weeks. Those are conversations we've never had as a staff, um, never. And I'm, I'm ashamed to say that, but you know, we're, we're taking those small steps. We're looking at, can we do, um, can we do training through, you know, Racial Equity Institute and a, a few others that are out there? Can we partner with the YWCA on things? So looking in, in your, your networks and your neighborhoods and um, being willing to say, I, I need help with this. And this is not an area that we're comfortable with. One of the things that we are certainly recommending organizations to do um, is you think about having a diversity, equity, and inclusion task force of your board, perhaps, because it's not just recruiting people of color. That, that's not, that might be a piece of it, but making sure that people of color or people of different backgrounds of any sort feel welcome in the boardroom, that you've, you've created a culture that allows for that, that your hiring practices and policies are welcoming and open and, and ensuring racial equity as much as possible. So I may mean, think that as Benita said, the first step is listening. Um, you know, being willing to to say you need help and don't have the answers. Yeah, and and thank you for that. I I think you're implicitly acknowledging that we have really quite a lot of work to do. Uh, Gregory, what what's what's your take on uh, the sorts of behaviors that we need to see going forward to to actually make a, a shift? Well, I, I mean, I think everything that's been said, you know, all good strategies. Um, you know, I I, I took you know, the murder of George Floyd very personally, um, where for days I wept. Um, and as a black man in Orange County, um, it was just kind of in my face in a real way. And so I struggle with really, a, it's a double pandemic, right? Um, both of them are global. And so COVID-19 is global. Um, 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 the, the impact on the black community at the hands of police officers, um, and not that all police officers are bad or racist, but all, all of those issues are global. So for the first time in our history, I think we see um, people protesting around the world around this issue. And you see more white people who are leading marches and leading protests around this issue. So I think it's a powerful moment. So I think the first thing is, is, is explicitly acknowledging that we have a um, systematic racism problem that's beyond police brutality. Um, it's, it's systematic. That's just one system. And so we, I, I think we have to, um, for all of us, um, whether individually or as organizations, we got to support anything that's, that um, has this history of racial inequity and really be, and really be explicit about it um, and be okay with that. Because it's not enough to say I'm not a racist. 
That's no. not enough. No, I think that's it's, the key it, learning. It, yeah, it, it mean you know you, you you can't not just be a racist and get a pass. It's you gotta you gotta be against racism whenever you see it. So it's challenging systems of racism whenever you see it. That's what needs. That's one thing that needs to happen. We have to challenge systems of racism when we see it, even if we are a part of it. We have to acknowledge it and we have to challenge that. Um, I think the second thing is you have to intentionally support black organizations um, around economic empowerment, around education, and really be intentional about that. Um, the other, the, so those, those two are two things that, that jump out. The third thing we're doing um, is we are creating a racial equity group in our organization. And um, when, when we, have a, we, have, we, we, we do something called a town hall where the entire organization gets together. Um, and I'm on my soapbox because this, this just happened two weeks ago. At the time, two weeks ago, George Floyd had been killed. And then prior to that, it was Breonna Taylor a month before that. And so it was very emotional. I can go through the list. And so it was very emotional for me. But at the end, I, I had my staff, we, we did a, um, a moment of silence for eight minutes and 46 seconds on Zoom. And my and many of them said they did not really they heard it but they didn't realize it until they had to sit there for eight minutes and forty six seconds. From that, we developed what I call a racial equity group um, that I put out there as and I said anybody wants to volunteer, um, please email me blah blah blah. And I had twenty five people volunteer and we're gonna start meeting next week, and we're gonna look at policies with our within our agency. We 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 and I don't know where it's gonna go. But it's about bringing awareness. I know we're going to bring in some, some individuals to come in and do diversity and inclusion training for us, and we'll, we'll take those steps. But I think those are kind of the things initially that kind of step out to me. Um, this can't just be a moment. This has to be something that right. really, right. really makes make changes. So sorry for, sorry for my soapbox. No, 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 it's, it's welcome. And, and I think the, what, I'm, what I'm hopeful for is, 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 is a commitment to that learning which allows people to make mistakes. And I think some of the conversations, uh, certainly among white people around race, has been sort of binary. You know, if you say the wrong thing, it can be misinterpreted and so on and so forth. And uh, it makes people uh, overcautious and very sensitive to saying the wrong thing or, 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 exp- or challenging the way they currently think. And that there's, uh, there's a, an opportunity to learn within within. Uh, an environment that allows for people to be honest with themselves and where they are and what mistakes they're making, then, um, then, you know, we have, we have, we have a chance to transition there. Uh, speaking of transitions, the last sort of major topic uh, I wanted to cover was um, around uh, mergers and acquisitions. And we've, we've touched on this slightly a little bit, but I want to uh, ask the panel what, factors are most important in trying to identify a uh, potential partner. And Gregory, I'm going to come back to you because I know you've, you've been through this uh, recently and we touched on it briefly last time. Um, but if you could tell us a little bit more about that and if you were doing it again, how you might uh, advise an ED or a board chair on, on how to think about a, a merger and acquisition situation. You know, I, I think, you know, without a lot of detail, I think it all starts with alignment of missions um, and cultures. And so if, if when, you, when, you're, when you're, a lot of the funders, especially here in California, are, are 
pushing mergers um, because it reduces, um, certainly it reduces overhead, back office, blah, blah, blah. And it increases social impact. And so when you understand why do a merger in the nonprofit world, why do it? Knowing that it's about social impact, knowing um, um, how you can leverage funding to have even greater social impact, then you then it's about identifying what organizations, what's missing in our organization that we, or what, what's the issue in our organization that we really want to tackle, but we're not the experts in it, and we don't have the we don't have the resources in it, and and so I, I think it's and then once you identify that is who do we know, um, and it may start out as partnering on a grant, it may start as partnering on a certain project that then evolves your dating, right? So then it evolves into a potential marriage. Um, um, and, and, and as you go through that, you're looking at the, you know, it's, it's like being in a relationship, right? Um, everybody looks good on a date, but watching Netflix and looking at their eating habits are very different. Their culture, you know, is, is very different when you're in someone's house. It's the same thing in organizations. On the outside, the website looks good, but until you really begin to understand their culture, how they treat their staff, um, um, really understand their mission, I think you got to go through a process of getting there. And then, so, so I think you, you start there. I don't want to take up all the time. But I think you start there by what is it that you want to what is it that you want to achieve, and what's missing that you you don't have you're not the expert in it. And there may be a smaller organization who's really good at it. And, and, and coming together benefits both of you. And so you gotta, you got to strategically be thinking about that. So, so, um, so mission fit, some complementarity around programs and services and expertise yeah. and some culture fit and so on. I think you know, that, that would probably be on everybody's sort of top, top five. I'm wondering, though, in the current circumstances, whether people may be forced to accept uh, you know, suboptimal partners just because of the... Um, the need to uh, maintain uh, financial solvency or what have you, because it does take time, as you said, to to go through that process. And even just because of the legal uh, ramifications of, of a merger or an asset share or whatever it is, it, it takes time anyway. Um, and so I'm just wondering if uh, if people will take the time to to do that 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 extended dating or courtship. No, I, I, I think, you know, beyond what I, what I just said, um, that's in a, like in a normal circumstance. I, I do think in a crisis, you do find ways to come together um, in a way because um, if the organization is in jeopardy of really going away during this time period because they don't provide an essential service right now, but you know that the community needs their, needs their service, that's an opportunity to have a conversation. So I think even in a crisis, on some level, we get forced to have these conversations with, with other organizations to really come together. So I think there's an opportunity there, if you're looking for it, I think there's an opportunity there to, to do that, even in a crisis. Yeah. Okay. Benita, uh, you had a little giggle there with the, um, the, the uh, romantic re- re- reference. Um, well, you know, you have to um, play with people who you like, respect, and have credibility. And so I would not advise my clients to join ranks with another organization who they don't know very well, having worked with them for a significant amount of time, 
and are respected in the community because otherwise it begins to harm their brand and their Mm -hmm. work that they do. But again, as Greg just said, I'd said you have to fundamentally be aligned on mission, philosophy, and values, Um, maybe around the population that you serve. Um, But what can you add that's value to this work that maybe the organization you're considering merging with doesn't have? Um, maybe they have a gap that you all can fill and, you know, vice versa. But also, do you have the capacity to take on this additional role, um, this scope of work, uh, their staff? Is their staff necessary? I mean, there's a whole lot of things that boards and executive directors need to think through before some merger or acquisition actually happens. Um, it could be, the basic question could be, is there funding available for this aspect of the work? If it's not, you're taking on something that you don't have the financial wherewithal to sustain over time. The other piece is that boards and executive directors need to think real deeply. They need to do a deep dive and have long conversations about um, if they acquire or merge with another organization, how can they leverage this to help build them and enhance their profile as a nonprofit organization? They have to develop sort of a span or sort of some sort of marketing around this change, this shift, and make sure that there's talking points and everyone is saying the same thing. Because um, you really have to sell this change, particularly in grassroots communities where people have a trusted relationship with these individual organizations. Mm-hmm. You really have to think about how you're going to sell this change to them so that you'll still have these audiences or these stakeholders coming to you for the services or whatever they would typically come to you for. So, uh, the um, key point I want to mention, other than not to just not to. Um, uh, take anything away from uh, from all the other points, but but a key point there that you mentioned was around having the uh, the financial and I could argue time and skill resources and able to actually pull it off. Right. Uh, Julie, do you see uh, do you see a lot of people approaching this question around merger and acquisition from in a sense the wrong place, like <laughs> um, not because there's that mission alignment or complementarity, but like look if we don't find somebody we're going to be at the wall and and no we don't you know they're already short of cash so <laughs> they they're, they're, again not not having the right resources um in, in those situations that is that more common than we think even outside of crisis times we we certainly do see that and and you know along with with what the others have said it's this you know it's about the mission surviving and the work being done. It's not about the organization surviving. And, and that can often be a, a barrier for, for folks. You know, we, we get, you know, real territorial and, and you know, it, it becomes personal. But if you can take it back a notch and say, you know, does this help us, you know, help our clients or the families that we're serving in a more impactful way? Does it give us a broader reach? Does it just does it make our community stronger by us combining in some way? And the other thing I would say is, you know, it can start small. I, I think um, one of the, the things that may come out of what has occurred over the last four months or so is, you know, we may have some office space that's available, uh, you know, and organizations can co-locate or, you know, share some back office resources. And that might be an initial step. You know, they, they remain separate organizations, but are, you know, sharing 
you know, shared space can be a, a way to, as Benita said, you know, you want to align, make sure your values align and make sure that, you know, these are, these are people that we want to be associated with because we're believing in the same thing and, and you know, heading towards the same goal. So what I hear is, is basically take it steady all the way up until a point where you think, yes, this might actually happen, and then continue to take it steady <laughs> and take small steps uh, to see that it actually could, could be. And make sure they have historically had good fiscal oversight. Yeah. It's not, right. not going to save an organization that is not worthy of being saved. You know, I mean, you're, in that case, you can bring down two organizations. So, right, right. you know, and then really you're looking you not so much savior, as a, right. You know? So you're not looking so much as a, a merger and acquisition at the, at the corporate level or the entity level, you might want to look at maybe one organization taking over some existing programs and allowing another organization just to wither on the vine in a sense, because it's, it's not been well run or it, or it can't survive. Right. Lots of options. Right. right. Okay. All right. Well, we've, we've run till two o'clock. Uh, I want to thank the uh, panel for uh, this discussion on boards and strategy and, uh, and for concluding uh, series one of nonprofit problem solver. It's been a lot of fun for me. Uh, we'll be back with expert panels in the fall of 2020 and uh, for the next 10 weeks, I'll be doing some one-to-one calls uh, uh, and interviews, which um, will be uh, a slight change, but a lot of fun for me still at Wednesdays at one. So thank you everybody. Thanks for joining us on the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. I'm grateful for this week's panel of experts, Julie Clark, Gregory Scott, and Bettina Stanley. This episode was produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You're also invited to join a private Facebook group, Social Impact Practitioner, where every day we go deep into the practical and tactical work to accelerate your impact. Because good causes deserve better results.